Draco Malfoy and the Mortifying Ordeal of Being in Love by Is This Self-Care? Narrated by S.E.P. Chapter 21. The Mortifying Ordeal Begins. Draco spent a pleasant few days in a state of floaty delight. Nothing could anger him. He was adrift on a happy little cloud. He didn't argue with his mother about whatever functions she strong-armed him into attending. He wholeheartedly hugged Zabini when he next saw him. He charmed a Gringotts goblin into a minor policy breach. At work, he greeted Potter and Weasley so pleasantly that they tackled him to the ground, convinced that he was imperious. It was then, with his face in Potter's armpit, that Draco began to realize that something dangerous was afoot. Something unbecoming of Draco fucking Malfoy. Then the feel-good began to ebb and reason began to flow. Draco, face removed from Potter's disturbingly moist armpit, devoted a considerable amount of time to wondering what the fuck was wrong with him. If he was to be honest with himself, unpleasant sensation, it was that something with Granger. It was a something with which he had been nursing for a few weeks, perhaps a few months. When had it begun? He wasn't certain. There were, now that he was looking back and attempting objectively, certain pivotal moments. Perhaps when they danced. Perhaps in Provence. Perhaps when she'd touched his scarred mess of a mark. Perhaps when she'd brought herself to the magical depletion to rescue him from a non-existent threat on the Quidditch pitch. Or when she'd called him a strength in her SWAT analysis. It might have been when she'd grown wildly enthusiastic about moss. He didn't know. It had been gradual and slow and easily ignored. However, a something of any kind between himself and Granger was dangerous and unacceptable. The obvious, ghastly, insurmountable issues of their history and baggage and general antagonism aside, she was his principal, and some things were strictly prohibited between the Aurors and their charges. Attraction was one thing, but feelings, if he was given a term to the something, were a violation of the code of conduct, and of common sense. Draco broke a great many rules, but this one was not one that he was willing to flout. Feelings clouded judgment and endangered Auror and principal both. It was sloppy. It was negligent. And furthermore, furthermore, Draco detested feelings. They were an irritation and a distraction at the best of times, and a hideous vulnerability at the worst. He had successfully dodged feelings in all of his entanglements with the fairer sex, including his engagement to Astoria. It was a good habit to cultivate. It kept things clean and tidy. It kept him unconquered and free. And now he had them. Lingering at Granger's door and getting lost in her eyes amongst the wisteria had opened a monstrous Pandora's box of them. Feelings. Mild ones, but still. Thoughts. Daydreams. They crept up on him when he least expected them. When he was eating breakfast, or arresting a dark wizard, or dodging a bludger. They had absolutely no business being in his head. And yet, they were. He sighed wistfully approximately 200 times a day. He replayed memories of old conversations with Granger, those back and forths that were sometimes easy banter and sometimes the crossing of swords. The smell of roses made him calf-eyed and stupid. He daydreamed about the kisses on his cheeks and the delight of the hug. When he woke up hard, he thought of Granger doing other things, vivid imaginings of which he was not proud afterwards, but fuck it, they were easy to get off to. He checked his daughter for missed messages from Granger daily. Pathetic. He sought out stupid reasons to jot her. Also pathetic. He paid more attention to the ring than usual. Even more pathetic. He resisted the urge to check her schedule and happened to pop along where she was, but the fact that he had the urge in the first place was excruciatingly pathetic. 
pathetic-pathetic-pathetic-pathetic-pathetic-pathetic-pathetic-pathetic-pathetic-pathetic-pathetic-pathetic-pathetic-pathetic-pathetic-pathetic-pathetic-pathetic-pathetic-pathetic-
absence makes the heart grow fonder, said Theo. Then what do you suggest? I don't want to see her again. I'll just be a moon-eyed fool trying to find excuses to put flowers in her hair. I'd say find someone else to distract you, but I have a feeling that was your first line of attack and a miserable failure. It irritated Draco profoundly that Theo was right. And how would you know that? Word travels. You've brushed off quite a number of witches in the past few months, you know. Feelings have been hurt. Ah. Apparently you've become picky. Some are blaming Narcissa for the reigning you in. Some are speculating that you've become looking for a wife. Luella suggests sudden-onset impotence. Charming witch, that one. What shall I say? The next time I hear your good name being tarnished? My mother does make a convenient excuse. Done. Theo summoned another wine bottle and placed it away from Draco. Aren't you having any? Or is this dramatic pacing your libation of choice tonight? I can't, said Draco. Good. My healer said that I had to remain off the sauce for a fortnight. I've got to wait till Tuesday. Poor darling. I shall have one for you, then. And tell me about your healer. It was Granger, wasn't it? Apparently it was quite a scientific coup, which she pulled, saving your hide. It was. Draco endeavored to look nonchalant. She attempted to explain it, but I can't pretend I understood a word. Muggle methods, you know. My eyes quite glazed over. You must be grateful to her. Draco eyed Theo, but Theo seemed to be pursuing this line of inquiry innocently. Of course. I'll be making a contribution to St. Mungo's and thanks. Are you still working together? Yes, said Draco. Where are you going with this? Nowhere, said Theo. I've merely heard that she's extraordinary. Right. I should invite her to my next party, mused Theo. Introduce everyone to the witch who saved our Draco's life. Draco, quite certain that he was being baited now, merely sniffed. If you think a swatty healer would be an exciting addition to your usual crowd. I think she might be. And just think. We could have a dance. And quite shock Luella with the sight of Granger cozying up to you. Draco was deaf to the remainder of the sentence. His cognitive functions were entirely occupied by the lovely notion of holding Granger in his arms. Backless dress again, certainly. Green was fine. Or black. She could probably be a vision in black. And heels that brought her just to the right height for... No. Fuck. Right, said Draco, sharply to conceal his embolic flights of fancy. I'll be off. You've proven to be quite useless. I could help you procure some version of a hate potion, but you know that its effects would only be temporary. As I said, useless. I think she's a lucky witch, personally, said Theo, settling back into his chaise, whoever she is. I've never known you to develop anything more romantic for a witch than a desire to spaff all over her tits. And you? I've loved and lost, said Theo with a tragic sigh. And spaffed? Oh, yes. Draco pressed his fingers to his eyebrows. I need to skip forwards to the lost part and carry on with my life. If you two are at odds as much as you say, I'm certain she'll soon insult you in some unforgivable way and quite put out whatever tentative flame burns in your breast. At this early stage, feelings are delicate. She called me an opportunistic ghoul and I almost kissed her. Goodness. Her eyes were afire. There was moments from strangling me. It was surprisingly arousing. Oh my, breathed Theo. You're waxing lyrical about eyes. That's dangerous. Is it? Terribly. You'll be attempting sonnets next. Then it won't be a crush anymore. It'll be love. Draco shuddered. Bloody fucking hell. Theo set down his glass with great finality. I shan't read your poems if it happens. I'm telling you now, I refuse. They'll be soul-shrivelingly horrid. There will be no fucking poems, said Draco. I may have to brute force my way through this. When thoughts arise, simply quash them. Quash them? Yes. That doesn't strike me as healthy, old boy, said Theo, peeling a grape. But what do I know? 
Nothing, as this conversation has made amply clear. I'm going. I needn't ask you to keep this to yourself. Obviously. I should obliviate you, just in case. But I won't remember how to defend you against Luella's aspersions. Bah, said Draco, stalking out of the salon. Give my regards to Hermione, called Theo, a definite smirk in his voice. Fuck you. Over the next few weeks, Draco grew pleased with himself. The quashing work. Whenever his mind strayed towards Granger, he redirected his thoughts violently to other things. Work. Investments. Society dinners. Nundu Venom. Voldemort. Tonks. He developed a veritable arsenal of subjects to launch at suspect thoughts, including memories of dark eyes, the brush of fingertips, a repartee over rose-strewn tables. He and Granger spoke little, with only the occasional jot from her to advise him of her attendance at public events or movements out of town. Of Larson, he heard nothing further. Granger said that the man had grown standoffish and no longer seemed interested in meeting with her. Draco took this as good news, though the Viking and his interest in Granger still weighed on him. He casually added Larson's description to the Orr's person of interest list, with a note to contact him directly should this individual be spotted on English soil. Draco grew confident that the something had been nothing after all. A momentary lapse in judgment, a forgettable summertime crush. So confident was he, or perhaps eager to prove it to himself, that when Granger advised him of her next asterisk outing, he decided to escort her. Really? said Granger. It's Hogwarts. It's project business, said Draco. All right, but don't blame me if you're bored out of your skull. Monday, August 1st, 4 p.m., Hogsmeade. Draco told himself that this anticipation for the meetup was merely due to it being a nice, easy end to Monday's schedule, which otherwise consisted of a visit to St. Mungo's for a tour of the Janus Thickey Ward with the hospital's top brass, followed by a spot of necromancer hunting. So the final day of July drifted by, and it was the first August, Lunasa. It was an offensively Monday-ish sort of day. It was Monday, but it didn't have to be so odious about it. At any rate, it found Draco at St. Mungo's preparing to tour the Janus Thickey Ward at the loathsome hour of nine o'clock. He was accompanied by a horde of St. Mungo's administrators and board members, all of whom had heard the news of Mr. Draco Malfoy's site visit in preparation for a substantial gift. The crowd bustled and prattled self-importantly about the thrill of visiting the ward as they climbed the stairs to the hospital's fourth floor. Draco had been introduced to the more important members of the horde, including Hippocrates Smethwick, a mild-mannered healer and recently appointed head of St. Mungo's, and a few other members of the board. The excrescence known as McClagan had even seen fit to grace them with its presence. Draco shook his hand and asked how the old lemon was doing. Concussions were serious business, you know. McClagan was a touch cool. It grew even cooler when he learned, through the general chatter, that Draco's donation stemmed from Healer Granger's extraordinary work. Yes, said Smithwick, she is rather non-traditional in some of her approaches, and thank goodness for that, eh, Mr. Malfoy? Healer Granger has been nothing but an asset to our hospital. Non-traditional how? queried a board member. Draco thought his name might have been Penlington. She is a doctor as well as a healer, said Smithwick. You mean one of those muggle cutty-uppy types? asked Penlington, his mustache bristling in alarm. Yes, said Smithwick, but she's also a fully qualified healer, of course. Her final examination scores broke even Grummage's a doctor, you say. Do we permit those kind to practice at St. Mungo's? I had no idea, said another board member. Do the patient CCs know about this? Asked someone else. Oughtn't they be informed? There was a general disconcerted rustle amongst the horde. Draco felt that a few disparaging comments were on the boil, but subtle ones, you know, the ones that would suggest shock, but of course, if Healer Granger was permitted to continue here, it must be fine. 
Of course, it wasn't about her being muggle-born or anything. It was merely an expression of concern and surprise about the unwizardliness of having a muggle doctor on staff. That she was a fully qualified wizarding healer was a footnote. Draco knew the subtleties. He used to be quite a master of them, in circles where such things weren't said, but quietly implied. I am alive today thanks to Healer Granger's non-traditional approaches, said Draco, his voice slicing through the mutterings. If she'd kept to our healing methods, like the three healers who saw me before she arrived, the treatment would have consisted of shrieking, that there was no antidote, and I'd be dead. Quite right, quite right, said Smithwick. Draco turned to the board members. It was Healer Granger who asked me to direct my gift to St. Mungo's. I had no intention of doing so. I was going to advance the funds to her own research enterprise at Cambridge. I certainly hope that you'll thank her the next time you see her. There was a rumble of assent and much nodding. Some board members looked abashed. Some looked utterly confused at this categorical defense of a healer with muggle ties to Draco Malfoy, of all people. McLagan was observing Draco thoughtfully. Dangerous pursuit. Any further mutterings were quieted. The board members were all businessmen or politicians. They could smell Draco's money and would behave accordingly. At last, they came to the fourth floor. Granger hadn't exaggerated how dingy the long-term care ward was. As he strode through the door, Draco noticed that the J and the T were missing from the sign, which currently read, Anus Hickey Ward. Draco stared at it gravely. The board members looked perturbed. Smithwick walked them through the ward, interspersing their advance with details on the number of beds, the healers per patient, the average length of stay, and other factoids that would have enthralled Granger, probably. Not that Draco was thinking about her, because he was quashing. There were thirty wire-frame beds, all separated by dingy cloth partitions. There were two tired but clean bathrooms, equipped with a toilet and a shower. The floor was well-worn tile, through which shallow depressions ran where people passed the most. There were only one window to speak of, at the far end of the ward, under which a few stringy plants valiantly struggled. The entire floor had a whiff of the forgotten about it, something like a storage area for things that had no further use but that couldn't quite be thrown out. The patients were a mixed lot, some very old, some young. About half were victims of the war, struggling with the residual ailments that couldn't be cured. Even Draco was moved by some do-gooding thoughts at the sight of the latter. He spotted the creepy boy, now a small, listless man. Lavender Brown, ravaged almost beyond recognition. Michael Corner, struggling against straps. Mitchell something or other from Hufflepuff, speaking to a wall in hushed tones, and others he couldn't name. Other beds had curtains drawn around them. A voice floated out from behind one, mellow and sad and familiar, but Draco couldn't quite place it. A child answered. A somber-faced healer and her aides moved from one bed to the next. A few of the patients had visitors. They stared in surprise at Draco and the unusually large and loud crowd around him. He understood why. He had a feeling that this ward was usually quiet, abandoned sort of place. Granger had wanted a piano. The group finished its tour and congregated at the window, which was easily the least dreary spot. Smethwick was looking at Draco with a sort of dread, awaiting his judgment. However, it wasn't Smethwick who held the purse strings. It was the board. It was that collection of mustachioed men who received the brunt of Draco's censure. He kept his voice low, but his questions sharp. Was there a reason why the board hadn't seen fit to inject funding into this ward since, by all appearances, 1903? Why hadn't funds for maintenance and upkeep been directed here? Had they been diverted elsewhere? Too many board luncheons and dinners at the Seneca, perhaps. Didn't the board conduct regular visits to the hospital? Did they consider this ward acceptable? 
Why did this appear to be their first time up here? Why were there only sufficient monies for 1.5 healers in this ward, while the cafe downstairs offered porcelana hot chocolate? Why did valiant survivors of the Great War have a single window and no bathtubs? And why, for Merlin's sake, couldn't they replace the bloody J on the front door? The group now stood in poses variously humbled and guilty. Right, said Draco. We can do better. He turned to Smithwick. I'm going to give you a substantial effusion of cash. Do you understand? Yes, said Smithwick. It will be the hospital's first gift of this magnitude. All right. It will be transformational. Yes, Mr. Malfoy, thank there will be strings attached. Strings? Strings, stipulations, on hiring, on refurbishing, on operations. And there will be, Draco eyed the board members darkly, safeguards in place to protect it from being whittled away. Yes, Mr. Malfoy, of course. Here, said Draco, pressing a thick envelope into Smithwick's hands. The details and the stipulations. You are to come back to me with a plan. Oh, excellent, wonderful, Mr. Malfoy. I, how can we thank you? You don't thank me. You thank Granger. It's for her. Draco strode out. Astonished stares followed him to the door. He heard Smithwick open the envelope. There was a gasp, followed by what might have been the sound of Smithwick falling into a dead faint.